welcome to Gunfighter Cast. The purpose of this show is to discuss firearms, equipment, and training as it relates to self-defense from a military, law enforcement, and responsible citizen perspective. This is episode 97, and we're going to talk about active shooter response. I'm your host, John McGregor. I've recently retired from full-time law enforcement, currently working full-time in the corporate security field. I'm also an instructor for the Six Hour Academy in Epping, New Hampshire. First, uh, before we get too deep into the show, I want to do a little bit of housekeeping. Notice there was no episode last week. Uh, I just want to address the frequency of the episodes. Right now, I'm going to be shooting for uh, an episode every two weeks. I really want to focus on uh, preparing content over necessarily just quantity of episodes. I don't want to put out an episode every week and just for the sake of putting out an episode. Um, so I've been in contact with uh, subject matter experts in some various areas of interest and uh, have a lot of episodes planned, but I want to give each of them um, their due attention so we put out a good product. We've got a couple ways that you can support the show if you'd like. Uh, first, we have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash gunfightercast, where you can make a pledge to give us a donation for uh, producing content. Uh, the other way you could help us support the show won't cost you anything. Uh, if you'll go into iTunes and give us a review, Got a few reviews in there already, but uh, I'd like to get some reviews since we've started uh, production back up, uh, see how the new episodes are going over. This episode is sponsored by the Tango Yankee Project. Uh, That's Daniel's project, and you can find out more about that at tangoyankeechip.com. Today's episode uh, was suggested by Peter Wiktorski and seconded by Bruce Howes uh, on the Facebook page. Peter had said uh, he was looking for a show covering active shooter scenarios from a concealed carry holder perspective as opposed to the law enforcement and military perspective. So that's going to be the purpose of the show today. I'm going to start out by talking a little bit about the law enforcement perspective to the active shooter. Again, my background's law enforcement, not military, so I'm not going to speak to that. What I'm speaking about is going to be based on um, my experience as a police officer, also um, being a SWAT team member for many years. I'm going to talk about the law enforcement response and how that might affect your thought process as a uh, concealed carry holder or other responsible citizen. I want to address something that I see on uh, the internet and Facebook posts Quite a bit. It's something I see repeated in uh, in various comments and so forth that police don't protect citizens; they protect the government, or something like police don't have to protect you. Now, let me just give a disclaimer: I'm not an attorney, and I'm not giving any legal advice. But I did actually read the cases that uh, that people are talking about when they say things like this. And I want to address those a little bit. I'm going to put the cases in the show notes if you want to read them as well, but uh, in particular, Warren versus District of Columbia. Basically, you know, in a nutshell, found that the police don't have uh, duty to protect an individual 
And what some people have taken that to mean or, or interpret as is that the police don't protect people. And that would be incorrect in my experience in law enforcement. Everybody I've ever worked with has gotten into law enforcement because they want to help people. And sometimes the, I think the court case, what the court case said is, is kind of misinterpreted. Basically, what the court case says is that, um, that the police have a duty to the public at large. So I want to just briefly quote the court case. And again, I'm going to put a link for this in the show notes. The case in question, Warren versus District of Columbia. Uh, the quote is, uh, in part, Courts have, without exception, concluded that when a municipality or other government entity undertakes to furnish police services, it assumes a duty only to the public at large and not to individual members of the community. It also goes on to say, dereliction in the performance of police duties may, therefore, be redressed only in the context of a public prosecution and not any private suit for money damages. So the first time I heard that the police don't have a duty to protect the individual, uh, at first that didn't sound right to me either. Um, it seems like that's what our job is, is to protect individuals. But once I read the court case, it kind of made uh, more sense to me. What the court case is saying is basically if the police don't protect you, you can't sue them for money damage. Uh, just like the quote that I just read to you, uh, I firmly agree with that just because you can't sue somebody doesn't mean that um, dereliction of performance should go unpunished. And there's certainly plenty of avenues of that as far as uh, discipline, uh, if it rises to the level of a criminal offense, uh, you know, charging the police officers for uh, dereliction of duty. But what the court case says, again, is just not that the proper recourse isn't a private suit for money damages. And you may agree with this, you may not agree with this, but, you know, I, I try and think about what would it be like if there was a duty to protect each individual. Basically, if uh, you were the victim of a domestic assault, you could sue the police department because we weren't there in the house to protect you. Uh, if you were to say you're going on a two-week trip to Aruba and you post it all over Facebook that you're leaving your house unattended for two weeks, you come back and your house is burglarized, well, you could, again, sue the police department because we didn't keep your house safe. You end up getting into a motor vehicle collision. Well, that's our fault, too. We didn't uh, We didn't protect you. You get that email from the Kenyan prince who wants you to send money so that he can release millions of dollars. Well, we didn't protect you from that fraud, so, again, you could sue the police. Initially, it sounds like, you know, that might be a great moneymaker for you. Something happens, you get to sue the police, make a lot of money. But it, it seems to me, if you think about it, where, if, if the municipality pays, where does that money come from? Well, that comes from you. You're the one who pays the taxes to go to the municipality. So, again, expect your tax rate would uh, increase significantly if the police department had to pay for every time something bad happened to somebody. I guess you could also take that um, that legal theory further if it were, you know, if it applied to the police officers, uh, why wouldn't it apply to a school teacher? You know, if uh, your son gets an F uh, on a certain test, well, obviously it's a school teacher that failed in the performance of their duties. 
so they should be able to be sued. And when the mailman you know, misdelivers your mail or, or doesn't come on a particular day, well, it's not doing his duty to you as the individual. So, you know, the mailman could get sued. Basically, you'd find yourself suing a lot more people if uh, if the law was, you know, written that way. So again, police have the duty to protect the public, but they can't guarantee your safety. So why would I bring that up in an episode about the active shooter situation? Well, the first example I'll talk about is imagine you're a victim laying in the entryway of a certain building where an active shooter's taking place. You might be happy when you see the police arrive, but with modern tactics, they're not going to stop and help you in the entryway. They're going to bypass you and keep going and try and alleviate the problem. A reason for this is tactics changed significantly after April 20th, 1999. That's when the Columbine High School shooting occurred. Uh, before then and, and during that event, uh, perimeters were established by the police. We'd wait for a SWAT team when there were bad guys with guns. And obviously that didn't work out well in that particular situation. Uh, a lot of people were shot while police officers were on a perimeter outside the school. What, um, what an analysis of active shooter incidents have shown is that the longer the police wait, uh, the longer it takes them to respond, the greater the body count becomes. The goal of the police response is to make contact with the shooter. They may end up stopping the shooter by force, or they may cause the shooter to take their own life. Generally, these shooters aren't looking for a good fight. Uh, that's why they choose gun-free zones. That's why they uh, choose places with children. Uh, they're not looking for armed resistance. So the sooner we can get them some armed resistance, the sooner they don't want to play anymore. Generally, when police respond, there's going to be uh, a couple different teams that, that will be formed up into. Uh, first team being a contact team. Uh, in some cases, depending on the municipality, that could be as, as small as a one-person team. But basically, uh, the police response is to get in there, find whoever's actively shooting victims, and stop their behavior. Once there's enough staffing on scene, uh, then a second type of team generally will form up called a rescue team. Uh, they'll go in behind the contact team and be a little bit more deliberate, and that's when you start, uh, that's when the police can start rescuing people, evacuating people, and so forth. But again, that initial contact team doesn't matter if you're you're laying in the hallway screaming, bleeding. They're just going to go right on by you and try and get to that shooter and stop them before they can hurt anybody else. So knowing what law enforcement's going to do is hopefully going to help us prepare for our civilian response. What are we going to do if we are either stuck in an active shooter type of situation or maybe we're on the outside and considering entering into that active shooter situation to try and protect somebody. Well, first I want to borrow from Scott Ballard and his protective shooting courses. Uh, one of the first things he has you consider is, uh, the quote is, who are you prepared to die for? And he suggests making a list. It's something you want to think about before you get into one of these types of situations. Now, your list may have number of uh, different people on it, and not everybody's going to be the same. 
Uh, you may have a spouse. You may have your kids on the list. Uh, maybe other children would be somebody that would be on your list. You'd be willing to die for those people. But at some point, not everybody's going to be on the list. Bob in accounting may not make the list of somebody you're willing to die for if uh, it turns out to be some kind of workplace type of scenario. And this is something that not only applies to your active shooter situations, but your kind of your concealed carry mindset in all things. Is the person behind the counter at 7-Eleven worth dying for? Uh, you've got to make those evaluations yourself to help determine what your tactics are going to be. You know, we'd like to think that um, you know, as concealed carry holders, we maybe we can go out there and save the world. But the fact of the matter is, if you get yourself killed while you're defending the the clerk at a 7-Eleven, there's not you're not going to be there to defend your wife, your kids, you know, your husband. So it's something you want to think about beforehand. Who are you prepared to die for? And again, you know, that's, I think Scott phrases that intentionally because, you know, we all want to think about who are we prepared to risk our life for? Well, risk and die are, are two different things. I mean, we, we really have to understand how dangerous an active shooter type of situation is in order to determine what kind of tactics we want to utilize. Understand that if you choose to attempt to engage an active shooter, you will find yourself advancing to an area containing a deadly force threat while other good guys armed with firearms who don't know what you look like advance to that same area. It's going to be a pretty hazardous situation to put yourself in. Imagine you are in some type of active shooter situation. How do you tell a responsible citizen from an active shooter? You might hear the sound of gunfire and go to that area and see somebody with a firearm. Until that person starts shooting at you, how do you know if they're the active shooter or if they're just somebody who's just like you, a responsible citizen, a concealed carry holder, who's trying to do the same thing you are? Now, I've never been involved in a active shooter situation other than uh, from the training end of things, uh, setting up and training. When we provide or participate in active shooter training, we go through a number of steps to make sure that it is safe as possible. Uh, number safety protocols, nobody gets into the scenario area with loaded firearms, safety checks and double checks. So the people going into the, the training scenario, they know they're not in any real danger. But you can still see the chaos that presents itself when you put people into an active shooter type of situation. And... In the training that I've been able to participate in, we've only really been able to replicate a small part of any bit of the chaos that would be in a real active shooter situation. We've done some school shooting scenarios, and we've had student actors, but the number of student actors we've been able to come up with have uh, been maybe as many as 20, which uh, considering the amount of kids that are going to be pouring out of a school when the police show up, it's going to be significantly higher. We've tried to replicate how we're going to deal with parents when they start showing up at the school because all the news, everything explodes. Everybody's getting uh, emails and tweets and it's on Facebook when all those parents converge into one of those areas. So even in the best case scenario, uh, the best, most realistic training 
that we can provide falls short of the chaos that would be in a real active shooter scenario. And I've had uh, the ability to be an observer for some of these trainings, and I see, you know, what happens to well-trained police officers in this chaotic situation. Danger signs are missed. A recent scenario that uh, I had a chance to kind of be an observer and a safety officer for that uh, a friend of mine at the police department had put together, uh, he had set up what were supposed to be improvised explosive devices. They were five-gallon propane tanks. They had wires coming out of them. They had flares taped around them. Basically looked like a bomb. And he put those things right in the entryway of the school. This was a uh, school shooting scenario that we were running through. Repeatedly, we would see officers come in through the entryway, and they would take up a position right by this five-gallon propane tank bomb. It wasn't just one officer. It was uh, most would come in. They would fail to see the danger signs. Now, you would think that anybody coming into a school lobby and seeing a five-gallon propane tank with wires and flares strapped to it would instantly recognize that particular danger sign. But that wasn't the case. Just the stress of the uh, potential encounter, uh, both real and imagined, causes uh, the officers to overlook some signs, some clues. We had set up the scenario. We had set up the scenario to include brass shell casings where we had uh, victims who were shot. We had brass shell casings on the ground. And basically, if you followed the brass shell casings, you could just basically like breadcrumbs throughout the school. If you followed those brass shell casings, they would take you right to where the active shooter was. And what we were surprised to find is that when we told the actors that there was gunfire coming from the second floor, Unfortunately, nobody saw the brass shell casings, and they took off in another direction. The stress that you're going to find yourself in, in an active shooter type of situation, is going to have an effect on your ability to perceive danger, your ability to process tactics, uh, your ability to shoot. If you think you're going to rise to the occasion, uh, I think you're going to be disappointed. Uh, that has not been my experience in, in participating in observing these training events in the past. So let's talk about the civilian response to the active shooter. Uh, a good resource that's out there that I uh, found without too much effort, if you go online, uh, the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department has a video. Uh, the website is activeshooter.lasd.org. Um, I'm sure if you typed in Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, active shooter would come up uh, This is probably the first search. Uh, it's about a 10-minute video. It's not quite the concealed carry perspective as far as the video itself. Uh, thinking back to the video, I don't believe anybody in the video is actually carrying a concealed weapon. But the basic premise of the video, uh, the steps that they outline, uh, I think I can agree with and I think do apply to how you would want to respond from a concealed carry perspective if you found yourself either inside a building with an active shooter or in the, the general vicinity. Step one, or 
the first priority would be to get out. Think about that list we talked about, that list that Scott Ballard suggests that you make up. Who are you willing to die for? If there's no one on your list in that building and you can escape, do so. This is why it's important to, no matter where you go, know where your exits are. Not just where you came in from, but if you have to exit in another direction, how to get out of a particular place. You know, applying this to a mall shooting or something, you're, you're with your family at the mall. If the people on your list, again, are with you and you can get to the exit and get out of the mall, maybe that's your best course of action. Understand the risk that you're going to be putting yourself in if, first of all, you leave them to find their own way out of the building, but but also the risk that you take if you then, once you get them to safety, go back into that area to try and help. Uh, again, other concealed carry holders could be in the area, and now you're putting yourself in that same area, possibly displaying a firearm. Somebody could come to the wrong conclusion and think that you're part of the problem, not part of the solution. A couple considerations I, I want to touch upon. First of all, you know, a lockdown. A technique schools sometimes use is a lockdown. Something bad happens and they want to uh, lock all the kids in the classrooms and so forth. Fortunately, school training is getting better because a lockdown isn't always the best response. In the past, what I've seen is uh, something happens and they lock down the whole school. The problem with that response is if somebody comes in, say, the front office and starts shooting up the place, certainly classrooms in that vicinity, it might benefit you to lock those down, make those harder targets. But if you're in a classroom at the other end of the school and you've got a door to the outside, what makes more sense? Remaining in the school lockdown or escaping the school before the threat can get in that area? So again, sometimes lockdown might be an appropriate uh, technique, but sometimes uh, it may not be. I know... Um, I know I had told my kids when they were still in high school, as far as lockdowns go, I told them that if there was a way for them to get out of the building, moving away from sounds of gunfire, I told them to take that option rather than just, uh, you know, staying in a classroom and hiding under a desk. The other thing I want to touch upon with, uh, as far as getting out goes is when you do make your escape. Again, you're at that, uh, that mall shooting or school shooting. The tendency is going to be to run out, go to the parking lot. Unfortunately, parking lots make great places to park car bombs. And if there's any kind of terror aspect to this, uh, this active shooter incident that you're found yourself participating in, certainly a, a regularly occurring technique uh, on the terrorist side of things. They've done their homework. They know where people are going to go once they start shooting. Parking lots will have um, improvised explosive devices to target those people that are trying to escape the area and also to target the law enforcement and medical emergency uh, medical service response to that incident as well. So certainly a good idea to get out of the buildings, but I would try and stay out of or stay away from lingering in the parking lots. Get away from vehicles. Vehicles can contain a lot of explosives, do a lot of damage. So 
Don't just stop moving once you're out of the building. Just keep going. Get out of that area. So again, step uh, step one or priority one for the uh, Los Angeles Sheriff's Department video was getting out. Uh, their next uh, priority or next step, assist injured if safe to do so. I think that's a real good consideration, something maybe we don't think about as concealed carry holders enough is, you know, we focus on the shooting aspect of things, but we may find ourselves being able to be more helpful when we're on scene, not with uh, the shooting end of things, but being able to provide some medical assistance. Remember, you're only going to be able to do that with a certain amount of medical training. There's plenty of good medical equipment out there. Um, you know, we've talked about him a lot of times, but Kerry Davis and Dark Angel Medical, they make some good equipment. So it's a good idea to have some medical equipment, but probably what's even more important is the medical training. A kit isn't going to do you any good if you don't have the medical training, you know, a little bit of uh, ditch medicine or knowing how to provide medical care in that emergency situation. The benefit of the medical training is that that's always with you. So even if you don't have the latest super tactical medical kit on your person, uh, knowing how to improvise with um, what's on hand to provide emergency medical aid uh, is going to be beneficial. The next step or next priority would assume that you can't get out of the building. You're stuck in the location, wherever that location happens to be. Uh, the third step, third priority is is secure your location. You want to fortify your location, uh, become an ensconced defender. The way the video portrays it, again, there's no there's no concealed carry holders in the video. So what the people do that can't get out is they lock doors, they put things in front of doors, they close window shades and so forth, and basically try not to be noticed by the attacker, try and make it easier for the attacker to go somewhere where they're not. Um, obviously, if you do have a firearm with you, that does uh, create some advantages because what you can do at that point is try and create the tactical advantage. If you can secure yourself in a location where there's only one door in, well, the good news is you know if the bad guy is going to do harm to you, they've got to come in that doorway. Uh, that creates a fatal funnel. You can set up on that doorway, and you're at an advantage. If the bad guy comes in, bad guy's got to look around and find where you are, but you know at some point he's got to occupy that piece of real estate. allows you to set up on there. Another consideration, if you're stuck in a particular location and you have access to communications, you've got a cell phone, notify emergency services where you are in that building. Again, understand that doesn't mean that police and ambulance are going to rush right up the hallway to your particular room that you're hiding in. It's a good idea to let emergency services know where you are in the building, how many people are with you, any injuries and so forth, but understand that they're, the responding officers aren't going to be able to act on that information right away. Certainly, um, the contact team may not be able to utilize that information, but when enough people get on scene that rescue teams start forming up, uh, that will help guide them in their response. The fourth step or the fourth uh, priority as far as this video goes is defending yourself. And maybe the 
and maybe fourth priority is a little bit of a misnomer. It's certainly not, uh, it certainly is a priority to defend yourself. Maybe a better term would be kind of a last resort is what the, the video suggests, uh, having to defend yourself. Basically, you weren't able to get out and unfortunately you weren't able to secure your location well enough to keep the bad guys out. Now you've got to move on to defend yourself. And this is an improvement over, you know, maybe some of the stuff that was, uh, trained in the past as far as you know hide under a desk or, or or that kind of stuff if you're just hiding under a desk you're just making yourself an easy target so what you have to defend yourself it might be the uh, gear you choose to carry uh, if you don't carry any weapons it might be improvised weapons things to throw things to turn into clubs whatever you have on scene to put up a fight rather than just curling up and dying now, since we're talking about the active shooter response from a concealed carry holder's perspective, really want to treat this like a, you know, maybe one of those more standard defensive handgun use situations that, that we may have considered in the past in that if we do have to defend ourselves in that situation, um, maybe we've drawn our, our firearm, had to defend ourselves, we're going to want to communicate with law enforcement, with responding officers, as soon as possible. Uh, we're going to want to use our loaded cell phone, as it were. We want to let the good guys know where we are and what we look like. Because, again, remember, the good guys are all headed to your location, whether you want them to or not. If you can get them some intel as far as what you look like and identify yourself as a good guy, uh, that's going to Im improve your chances of survival not getting mistaken for one of the bad guys you also want to improve your position if possible and this was something that uh, we saw even on the SWAT side of things say you come around the corner and there's the the bad guy with the AK-47 down the hallway and you return fire and you drop him in the hallway do you want to stand in the hallway and wait for the police to come first of all you may be standing there for a while uh, one of the things you want to consider, especially if it's a, uh, a terrorist-related attack, is the possibility of multiple attackers. So the answer is no, you don't want to stand there in the middle of the hallway. If you feel it necessary to cover down on that suspect, step into a uh, step into a doorway, step into a room, step behind something, get yourself some cover if possible. Basically, one of the things uh, on the SWAT side of things that we're always looking to do would be to improve our position. If things slow down at any point, do an evaluation. Can I do the job where I am, but can I do the same job in a better position? Always want to be improving our position. And again, I've said it before, but remember that the police will be headed in your direction. So it's not like you can just engage the bad guy and then once they're down, necessarily make your escape out of the building because all the police are going to be coming in the other direction looking for somebody with a gun. So that might uh, put you in a hazardous situation. I think a lot of um, in a lot of scenarios, the best response is going to be to get to a position of cover but remain in that area, get in contact with law enforcement, let them know where you are, what you look like, and be prepared to follow their instructions. Might be a situation where you do have to and uh, you do have to evacuate the area. Uh, maybe they've uh, bad guys have set fire to a place or something. You've got to to you can't stay in the at the scene of the shooting. Again, remember the police are going to be coming. Uh, I'd certainly um, 
if I was going to escape the area, I don't, I wouldn't want to be running through the hallways with a gun in my hand. So I might consider having the pistol in the holster. If you have to exit during the police response, uh, just remember the officers are going to be looking at your hands. Uh, it's the hands that kill generally. And they're going to be looking for guns in hand. So if you come running out of the building with a gun in your hand, uh, they may misinterpret your role in the proceedings for that day. So I would certainly suggest once it's safe to do so, you've uh, engaged in immediate threats, holstering up and have those hands out in front of you when you do encounter law enforcement on the way out. Verbal communication, just, you know, letting them know that, um, you know, you're one of the good guys, but but again, understand those stresses that we talked about earlier that uh, the responding officers are under. They may not initially comprehend what you're telling them, and you know they may they may still think of you as a threat or want to verify that you're not a threat. So, quite simply, um, just follow whatever instructions they give you uh, in that circumstance. So, all in all, uh, as far as the video goes. Um, it's a pretty good video. It's not, again, it's not 100% geared towards a concealed carry holder's response, but I think it's, um, I think it's a good tool. It's definitely worth the money because it's free. Um, but it's good to show, you know, not only, you know, maybe you as the, the defender, but other people in your family as well, just in case you're not there, uh, the steps to take if they find themselves in some type of active shooter type of situation. And based on, based on what we've talked about, do some pre-planning. In, in law enforcement, we call it vicarious patrol. Uh, basically just what if games. As you're, you know, working yourself through life, you maybe you're going to parents' night at the school or something. Kind of plan out, you know, as, as you're in that school, look around, see where the exits are, see where your kids' classes are. You know, try and do some pre-planning. What if you're out in the parking lot and something happens? Are you going to go in? If so, where would you go in? Where would you be able to find a secure location if you needed one? Think about the same type of what if scenarios in your, in your workplace. Somebody, somebody comes into your workplace, starts shooting up the place. That may cause you to have to kind of reevaluate your response because your workplace may not allow you to carry the same gear that, that you like to carry as a concealed carry holder or maybe different gear to conform to uh, dress codes and so forth. As you're going around the mall, try and be aware of where the quickest exit is, not necessarily, again, where your car is parked, but how you can most quickly get out of the building. And as you do some pre-planning, you can assess your gear choices. I know I've done it before. I've been guilty of it. But, you know, sometimes you're you're just running out for a minute. You're just running, uh, maybe you're just running quickly to the mall for something. You throw on a a t-shirt, shorts, and throw a J-frame in your pocket, that can happen. Is that the gear you want to find yourself with if something bad happens? Now, there's nothing wrong with a J-frame revolver and uh, certainly a good tool to defend yourself with. But if you've got something better, uh, something with more capacity, something with um, more powerful rounds, maybe uh, throw that uh, pocket dark Dark Angel Medical Kit in your pocket as well before you head out the door. Uh, again, part of that, uh, those what-if games. Think about the equipment you're likely to have, and is that going to be satisfactory if you find yourself in one of those situations? So that is my commentary on responding to the active shooter scenario from uh, both the law enforcement and the concealed carry perspective. I'd like to hear your thoughts. 
Was there anything I missed? Anything else that we can share uh, with our listeners? I would appreciate any feedback you can give me. Easiest ways for feedback uh, to go directly to me would be john at gunfightercast.com if you prefer an email. We also have a Facebook page where we actually get a lot of feedback as well. I had requested feedback on the Facebook page, and I did get uh, some some ideas and so forth. Uh, I'm just going to talk about that briefly. Uh, Ryan Page asked if there's any plans on an AK episode. You know that Daniel is a foreign weapons instructor. Uh, the short answer is yes, there is plans to do an AK episode. Uh, I am certainly not an expert in the AK, but I do know people that are experts in, in that platform. So I'm kind of envisioning something like I did with the, the 1911 episode where uh, I bring somebody on that actually knows something and makes me look good because I can ask questions and, and then they have to know all the answers for it. Jacob Graham comments, Distance has been a factor in some recent incidents that got a lot of news coverage. I'd like to hear both your takes. Uh, Daniel's not here. I'm the only one here on this episode, but my take is shooting at distance is an important skill, just like you're uh, being able to engage a target close up. Sometimes, you know, we think about, about long distances and so forth, but really what it's about is precision. A body size target at 25 yards is basically you're going to use the same skills to hit that as you would somebody that's using cover and you've only got maybe an inch or two of bad guy to, to aim at. So I don't know if that's exactly what you're, what you're looking for, Jacob. Uh, it's certainly something we could, um, certainly something Daniel and I could expound upon when we do talk together. But I do find that there is a, a need to practice precision fire. You know, certainly, you know, bad guys three yards away and you draw your pistol to defend yourself, uh, you may not need the perfect sight picture. But, you know, somebody's behind cover, that might be where you might need to use your sights to have the precision to hit that smaller target. Being able to transition to precision sighted fire is not just going to help you with those smaller targets, but it is going to help you hit those larger targets at distance. Sean Smaldridge asked, when is SIG bringing a shotgun to the market? I did ask uh, Jeff Creamer at SIG, and he said no comment. And Chris Johnson had a, a comment about uh, rifle training, difference between uh, what he's seen in some carbine classes, as well as some more traditional loop sling methods. That's something that, again, uh, I think would be a good... Uh, a good show topic, not just a quick comment on the end of the show here. So I'm going to keep that and uh, add that to the list of uh, upcoming episodes as well, talking a little bit more about the rifle work. One of the things I tend to suck at when it comes to uh, these podcasts are thanking the other shows that um, you know that, that mention us. So I do want to remind you that there are a lot of uh, good Second Amendment podcasts out there. Uh, most of these I'm sure you're familiar with, but gun dudes always have always supported us in the past, and uh, certainly all the podcasts I'm about to mention too are worth a listen. Uh, Road Gunner Podcast, Modern Rifleman Radio, and Slam Fire Radio, uh, Handgun World Show uh, with Bob Main. Bob, I hope you're doing well. Modern Self Protection with his co-host Ben Branham. Polite Society Podcast. I'm currently scheduled to 
be talking with uh, Paul and crew on the Plate Society podcast in an upcoming episode. Gun Nation podcast and Safety Solutions Academy, because one podcast isn't enough for Paul Carlson. And Ken Blanchard uh, is doing a number of different things. Uh, go over to BlanchardMediaGroup.com and you can see all the things that he's involved in. And I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, many more shows out there that are that are well worth your listen to. So again, everybody, thank you for listening. Uh, please do keep in touch. We've got the GunfighterCast.com page. My email is john at gunfightercast.com. Daniel can be reached at daniel at gunfightercast.com. Twitter, uh, gunfightercast is a account we've recently opened. And again, the Facebook gunfightercast page where you're going to find most of our content. Thanks for listening. Gunfightercast out.